Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 309 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. This episode is brought to you by Financial Peace University and Right Now Media. My guest is Terry Wardle. Man, this one's special. So I uh, get the privilege of taking you into a very pivotal season of my life where uh, about 15 years ago, as a leader in my 30s, I met a guy named Terry Wardle, my guest today. And Terry at that time was a professor at Ashland Theological Seminary. He's a university professor and uh, was leading really a program called Pastors of Excellence that I got attracted to because of the word excellence, but it was really about your heart as a leader. And honestly, this was providential timing. As I say to Terry, I'm not sure I'd be in ministry today and I'm not even sure I'd be married today if it wasn't for the work that God started to do in my life in uh, the early 2000s under Terry Wardle's leadership. And uh, there were lots of other people involved, but Terry and I sort of talk about that season of my life. A lot of you've heard me talk about emotional health and uh, the, the heart health of the leader. And yeah, that all started with this program and Terry Wardle. And it's, uh, it's an incredible privilege to bring you this conversation. Uh, if you're watching it on YouTube, you may notice that I'm smiling and trying to fight back tears the entire interview. It was that meaningful to me. Terry's got a brand new book out, which tells his story. It's called Some Kind of Crazy. And it's just about the personal, the interior life of the leader. Uh, man, uh, this one's real special. So thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. We have an Ask Carrie coming at the end. Taylor from San Diego wants to hear my advice on marriage uh, with a high impact leader lifestyle. Of course I do. So we'll talk about that. But hey, guys, you know what? Christmas holidays are right around the corner, and that means a lot of people are going to have more debt. And uh, that's not great. Well, what if you were part of the solution? And what if you perhaps even got your own life in gear financially next year? Now, this is going to sound strange, but one of the ways you can best help them is to lead people through a program called Financial Peace University. You may have heard Dave Ramsey and his teachings. Well, Financial Peace University has now helped nearly 6 million people take control of their money, pay off debt, and build wealth. And they're looking for leaders like you to help lead a class. Here's the thing. You don't have to be a financial expert. You do not have to be debt-free. In fact, you can use this as a springboard to get out of debt yourself. You don't even have to take a class before leading it. 40% of their group leaders for Financial Peace University lead a class while taking it for the first time. Plus, a dedicated advisor will walk you through. If you're a little bit nervous, uh, they'll walk you through everything on how to lead a class. Plus, you get everything you need. How much does it cost? Nothing. So if you're looking for a way to serve others, simply text Give Hope to 33789. That's Give Hope, all one word, to 33789. And I am so excited to see the stories that get written in 2020 as people climb out of debt. I'll tell you, uh, we have been, we've never really been in financial trouble, but there were times where money was always a tension in our family. And it's not these days. I got to tell you, that is such a gift, financial freedom. So uh, if you want to be part of that text, give hope to 33789 and help some people get out of debt next year, maybe even yourself. And also, 
If you're looking for a way to develop people and equip those around you, whether you're a business leader or a church leader, there's a powerful tool for you to leverage in your church or your company. The team at Right Now Media creates the world's largest video-driven leadership training, Bible studies, and personal care resources. More than 20,000 churches, schools, and businesses already subscribe to Right Now Media's streaming platform. And that gives their people, you know, like people in your organization, access to tens of thousands of inspirational videos anytime, anywhere. So uh, they have content from people like, well, some of my former guests, Patrick Lencioni, Henry Cloud, Ann Voskamp, Francis Chan, J.D. Greer. And they cover topics like marriage, personal finance, mental health, and so much more. So when your organization subscribes to Right Now Media, everyone gets access to these videos free. So to access that, go to rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry. That's rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry to get a free trial of Right Now Media today. Well, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with professor, author, and my friend, Terry Wardle. Well, this is a real thrill to have Terry Wardle on the podcast. Terry, welcome. Uh, it's it's such a joy. I I feel a very personal connection. It's almost like I'm just talking to an old friend. Well, we are. We're having that conversation because uh, I know I teed it up in the intro to the show, but not very often do I have guests who I go back 15 years with personally. And uh, it was actually, we'll probably start there. It was around, I think, maybe 2003 that we met for the first time. At that time, tell us a little bit about what you were doing at uh, Ashland Theological Seminary in Ohio. I had been on the faculty for a few years by that time, and I was increasingly concerned about the well-being of of leaders. Mm. And uh, I had an opportunity to start a program. We called it Renewing Pastor and People. And Christian leaders would come, and we would spend time with them, and I would talk about the essentials. I would always say, you have to pay attention to the essentials. Well, uh, the Lilly Foundation found out about that, and we had some conversations, and they were willing to fund a program called Pastors of Excellence, in which we would bring pastors in, and they would spend about a year with us in different venues, and we would be trying to focus in on what would be the essentials. There are just so many leaders out there working hard to be effective and not paying a whole lot of attention to their interior lives. And what was interesting, Carrie, was a lot of people got thrown off by the title. Yeah, the that was me. <laughs> yeah, programs called Pastors of Excellence, and they think they're going to come and get more skills, more competencies, and they're there a little while and find out, oh, this is about me. And not all of them were happy about it, but they mostly stayed, and most of them experienced something very deep. Yeah, and that was 100% my story. So I think you know this, actually. I'm quite sure you know this, but uh, Chuck Congram, our mutual friend, was mm -hmm. one of my mentors, um, still is, but back then uh, very active in my life, and said, you got to come to Ohio with me and do this Pastors of Excellence thing. And to be, I remember there was an application, right? I still remember being yes. in my office filling that out. And 100%, you got me hook, line, and sinker. I think God used that, Terry, because I just saw excellence, and I'm like, I'm in. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to do this, right? And then I get down to POE and you tell your story on the opening night. I remember being in a lecture hall with 100 people I didn't know. And you're talking about growing a church rapidly. I'm very interested. And then you had a complete breakdown that lands you in a psychiatric institution and you start talking about your heart. And I'm like, 
how do I get out of here? Like, how do I, how do I get out of here now? And I'm not sure if it wasn't for my friend Chuck, I might've left that night because I was so uncomfortable. I was like, uh, how would I, I would have been 37, 38. I was so uncomfortable with that whole interior dialogue. But I think my friend Chuck kind of knew, I think this is where Carrie needs to be. And absolutely, I mean, I stuck around and, uh, you know, Tony and I were talking about this last night at dinner. I'm not sure I'd be in ministry today or in leadership today. And I'm not even 100% sure we would be married today if it wasn't for the work that God started to do in my life, a huge part of which has been POE. I mean, that kickstarted the whole thing. So I owe you an incredible amount of gratitude and a huge debt. But uh, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was quite the journey, Terry. I mean, you say you remember those years quite well and you met me as a young, aggressive, ambitious pastor with a growing church who needed to pay attention to his heart a little more. Fair, fair enough? Oh yeah, you know, uh, it's humorous to me because we had spent a year before you got there mm-hmm. working with 18 people that would serve as the, cohort leaders. right? And about, about the second retreat in, Chuck Congram said to me, I didn't sign up for this, where you're taking us. <laughs> and I laughed and he was serious. And then I said, well, I'm going to take you to the paperwork and show you that you did sign up for this. And pretty soon he started laughing. He said, I may not have signed up for this, but this is the path God wants me on. And you know that over the years, we ended up having hundreds uh, of leaders go through the pastors of excellence. And we would actually measure going in and coming out of how they were feeling about themselves, their stress levels, their understanding of identity and calling. And we saw major movement. There's one of my favorite books on leadership uh, is Edwin Friedman's book called The Failure of Nerve. And one of the things, it, it's it's a fantastic book. I haven't and read it. Yeah. One of the things Friedman says is that The problem in leadership is not a failure of competency, but a failure of identity, Mm -hmm. meaning many people and leaders are not stable in their identity. And as a result, they use performance and achievement as a way of advancing themselves. And he says, no matter how much you move them towards competency, if they don't know who they are and if they're not a differentiated leader, it's going to lead to serious problems. And that's what happened in my life. And that's one of the reasons that I began to invest in writing the material for Pastors of Excellence, to be able to say to these excellent men and women, you have got to be attentive to your interior life because your unresolved past will catch up with you. And as you know, for many of the men and women that were there, they were living on the brink right then as to whether they were going to continue in ministry. Many of them were sacrificing their personal well-being. And I remember well saying once, Workaholism in ministry is not a matter of theology. It's a matter of pathology. And -hmm. until we deal with that pathology, we're not going to be the men and women that we are supposed to be. So I've talked pretty uh, openly on on this platform, on the podcast, also in some of my writings about sort of my performance addiction. And Mm -hmm. I think it was actually through POE that I first put my finger on that and went, wait a minute, because you're big in in your ministry and your teachings and in your writing about the lies that we tell ourselves. And these aren't things, you know, our parents didn't lie to us necessarily, or, you know, teacher didn't lie to us, but you, you, 
you know, I know in my childhood, it sort of came apart. And I don't know 100% how this happened, but like, I just thought, oh, if I perform well, people seem to be more pleased with me. And, you know, so, okay, get good grades, uh, hustle hard, um, get entrepreneurial. And all of a sudden, everybody, you know, your stock goes up personally. And that that almost hit a, a crisis point at when I was in my 30s, because I really felt like it didn't matter how big the church got. It didn't matter how successful I was as a leader or how much affirmation I got. There was a sinkhole at the bottom of me that just, you know, I remember Tony saying to me, like, how much is enough? And I kind of realized, oh, the answer is nothing's enough. And that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, someone asked Rockefeller once, how much money is enough? And he said a little bit more. Now, at that time, he was the wealthiest man in the world, but he needed a little more. I I think this is fundamentally the issue. I think we live in a world that communicates this to people. As you are, you're not enough. But if you will achieve and if you will perform, you will then be able to have your deepest core longings met. So if you want love, if you want significance, if you want purpose, if you want to belong, perform. Mm. And because we want those things, off we go. I was a performer. And, you know, I became a seminary professor, then a writer, then a speaker. Then I started a fast-growing church. Then I become a seminary president. And all that time, my unresolved past was chasing after me. And I was trying to outdistance through achievement and performance. And then when you get those kudos from others, you think, well, surely I'm on the right track. But then the barrenness of that busyness and emptiness comes in and you realize you've sacrificed heart. And, and this cacophony of voices are keeping you away from your true self. It's not unique to ministry either. Are you, do you think this is a common life slash leadership journey for most people? Well, I, I think many of us, whether we're in Christian leadership or corporate leadership, struggle with this basic message. How do we get our deepest longings met if we're not achieving and we're not performing? I do work with people that are not necessarily in the Christian family. Mm. And and the corporate world, it suffers the same way. And as a matter of fact, I'll give it another. I, over the last two years, have been working with the American military. I've been brought to do training at Fort Bragg, Fort Monroe, Fort Knox. Here are soldiers. Yeah. And they live in an environment where there's the, the soldiers that please and the soldiers that don't. And you want to please and you work hard and you try to measure up. And I think there's nothing that beats a person down more than trying to measure up. Hmm. What, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm imagining the room that we were in and the cohorts that we were in and we were all assigned small groups. So there might be, I don't know, 50 or 70 in your particular year. And then uh, we all had small groups that we are part of. You said something earlier, which is really interesting to me, that the majority of the people who got there had massive issues that could potentially take them out of leadership, things that they didn't see coming. When you look back over all of those cohorts, you know, what what percentage would you say of leaders in the room were close to burnout or close to, you know, and it's not like they're hiding, you know, affairs or that kind of thing. It's just like, man, this grind has gotten to me and I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Was that a pretty common condition? It's a very common condition. It was for pastors of excellence. And what happened, as you know, once you get past that first day or two, you've been given permission to be open about your own journey. And all of a sudden you find, wow, at least these five people around my table are struggling like I am. 
if you went to every table, you would find to some degree people are burnt out. They're trying to measure up. They can't figure out what it's, what's it going to be that actually gets me to the top of the mountain I'm trying to climb. And at the same time, they're wondering about their families. And you know this, many people, both in corporate leadership and in church leadership, begin to suffer in their relationships with the people they love the most. Yeah, They're out there trying to achieve, and all of a sudden you see uh, their relationship with their children's at risk, their relationship with their spouse at risk, their relationship with God is at risk. And it's all because they're being driven by unresolved issues of the past that keep them pushing toward this issue of performance. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's dig in a little bit to your story. So do you want to walk us through it? It's a fabulous book, too. It reminded me, I don't know whether you read the book. It came out a couple of years ago, Hillbilly Elegy. Yes. Uh, but it reminded me a little bit for readers who might have read that. Like, it was quite the upbringing, Terry. And those were, there were some stories in there. Like, I just, you know, having spent years with you at different points, I just didn't know. But everybody's got a story, right? And you tell that story in your in in your book. So walk us through it a little bit. Well, first, I wrote this book at the encouragement of a few people in order that people could see that God wants to meet us in our story hmm. and that he wants all parts. Of, he wants access to all parts of our story. I used to think that God wanted all the good parts of my story or he wanted me to somehow you know, become better at sin management so that I could, uh, you know, ascend to the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in the midst of my story, I met the Lord in the ditch. So let me talk a little bit about the ditch. I grew up in the coal mining fields of Western Pennsylvania. My grandfather had been in England. He had been born in England, my great-grandfather rather. He was in prison and he escaped and came to the U.S., left his wife and daughters there. Then when he comes here, he gets his his cousin pregnant and starts a family here without ever divorcing that family there. Okay. He, ends, he ends up having eight children. They all came into this little area where I grew up. They all had big families. And one of the people that was part of that family was my grandfather. And then my grandfather, of course, through very dysfunctional means, <laughs> uh, ends up having my father. So I grew up in the coal fields among a people that had a disdain for education, a distrust of religion. They believed in one another, in hard work. I would say that my family crest would have been blue collars and rednecks. Mm. And I I said to somebody, if our family men wore cologne, it was the scent of diesel fuel and dirt. And that's where I grew up. And it was rough. And our family, I just have to be honest, they believed in the law if it was to their advantage. If it wasn't to their advantage they would get outside of the law. And so there was adultery, crime, there was uh, addiction of various levels, and that's the environment where I was growing up. And, and there were very specific issues that occurred to me, events that were highly traumatic, being abused, uh, being abandoned in certain times. And I ended up through a bunch of these events having a serious battle with anxiety Even as a small boy, I had seen death five feet away from me by the time I was five. My uncle shot my aunt by the time I was seven, eight years old, right next door. And those had a lasting impact on my my life and trauma. And what I didn't realize at the time was even though when I came to Christ, it was wonderful, I carried all that unresolved baggage with me. 
And it became part of the motivation to achieve, part of the motivation to perform, part of the motivation to prove that I'm better than I think I am. And those wounds were serious issues in my life. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I mean, everybody's got a childhood story and some seem to be pretty normal, like middle-class-ish backgrounds, but your story is not uncommon to, to have that kind of background, to have that kind of trauma, to have abuse. Can you walk us through some specific things that you saw or that happened to you or around you as a child? And then the impact Mm-hmm. That like how you remember as a, cause that's part of your ministry too. You take people back to when they were three or four and you invite Jesus into the presence of that memory and so on and so forth. So can you talk about how, what some of those experiences were and how that impacted you as a child? Sure. Let me, let me give you two or three quickly. Mm-hmm. One, I was probably five years old. My grandfather was a notorious adulterer okay. and he would run around with women all through our town. One night he came to the house I was there with grandma and he said, Terry, let's go for a ride. I was shocked by it. Grandma was shocked, but off we went. We got in the car. I thought it was just him wanting to be with me. We go up the country road, Carrie, and all of a sudden we turn down a two track that goes out through the woods and it's getting darker and darker. The sun goes down. You can hear the, the, the tree limbs scratching on the side of the car, which sounded like witches screaming. All of a sudden, he reaches into the glove box. He pulls out a revolver and tells me to lay on the back seat of the car in the floor. And he gets out and he's gone for over an hour. I'm a five-year-old kid in the woods, away from the road, hiding on a floor, remembering a gun. He comes back an hour later, all perspiring, gets in the car, backs out. And on the way back to grandma's house, he said, don't tell anybody, this will be our secret. Well, eventually I did tell because I was scared to death. And my parents just didn't want to talk about it. It was years later that I learned that he was off, went to the woods, came down over the hill and had an adulterous relationship with a woman whose husband was on afternoon ship in the coal mines. And here I was as a kid dealing with that. It wasn't but a year later, I was at grandma's house and I heard him scream, a blood curdling scream. He comes out around the dining room and falls at my feet and, and screaming and writhing and he goes into a coma and dies there. And again, in my family, there was no talking. So let me give you one other. So maybe six months later, we're at grandma's house. I'm sleeping in a bed. My great grandmother's in the bed next to me. And all of a sudden, grandma comes in and shouts, oh, my God, mama's dead. And so here I am, five years old. <sighs> and next to me is a dead woman. And then all that, you know, them coming and taking her. Now, I could give you more examples, but here's the point. <sighs> My family didn't talk about issues. They didn't talk through issues. You just pressed on. And I began to develop this extreme fear of the dark, extreme fear of death, um, extreme fear of harm. And the only thing my family did was shame me. They gave me the name of a nervous child. My dad called me a weenie. And so all through that childhood, I'm trying to pretend to be something I'm not when I'm afraid. And then when I get to my teenage years, I learned that anger can at least silence fear. And I just became an angry, aggressive kid, an angry, aggressive teenager carrying that baggage with me. Wow. Do you have any, your mother dying next to you, your grandfather doing that. Do you have any idea to this day why your grandfather took you on that ride? It was a ruse. He was uh, wanting to pretend like he was just out to take Uh, me for a So he was uh, deking out your grandmother. Right, absolutely. Wow. 
And your mom, what did she die of? Did she have no, a no, heart attack? No, no, my grandmother. It was grandmother my grandmother. Died. Sorry, your grandmother died. Bed. Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, she passed right beside me. And, and, you know, when you're five years old, none of this makes sense. No. And if people don't empathically connect, you start carrying these wounds with you off into your adulthood. And that's what happened to me. And so my teenage years were pretty much marked by anger, aggression, performance, trying to outdistance myself from this guy inside I don't like anymore who's that scared kid. Wow. Then how did you become a Christian? What was that story for you? Well, it's, a, it's about a three-stage process. First, my mother, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, went off to a revival service, Carrie. We weren't church people, but she went off to a revival service. But honestly, it was half revival, half vaudeville show. Because what had <laughs> happened is this, this revivalist came to town. He had a song leader and he'd be, the song leader would be out there first and he'd be singing these great gospel songs and the church would be packed. And the revivalist would dress up like Jesus. And then he might peek in the window and everybody sees him. <laughs> Or he might go into the balcony and suddenly they point to the balcony and he would peer over. Or he'd hide behind a pillar and he'd look out from the pillar. And of course, people would yell and they would swoon. And then he'd go and he'd put his street clothes on and he'd preach with the idea of, well, it wasn't me. You know, it was (laughs) Jesus. Well, my mother went to this. And um, I remember, too, she made me go once, you know, a 13, 14-year-old kid. And I can remember sitting there and all of a sudden to my left, the doorknob started turning slowly and the door opens and he peeks his head out and there's Jesus staring right at me and he didn't look happy to see me. (laughs) And then, (laughs) you know, people are yelling and swooning and pointing toward him. Well, Carrie, here's the issue. Something happened there that my mother did come to a form of faith. She had a relationship with Jesus. So she began to drag us to a country church that was rather legalistic and a little Pentecostal, but they had a great youth group with girls there. And I started to attend this youth group in order to meet girls as a teenager. And David Wilkerson was coming to Pittsburgh with all Mm. of his drug addicts. And they got a bus and they took us in. And I wanted to go because I could sit in the bus with girls. I get to this event and David Wilkerson preached a sermon on the sword of the Lord is coming through the land. It was hell fire. Scared me so much Carrie, I got out of my seat and walked outside the Syria mosque and then realized I won't know how to get home. I went back in and eventually he said, if you don't want to go to hell, come forward. I went up forward. I was scared out of my mind. But do you know what happened? Kneeling on the floor up there, I had the sweetest moment of the presence of God and his love. And it planted a homing device in my heart. Now for the next seven, eight years, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a disciple or a devil. And I spent more time investing in being a devil. But one night when I was ending college, I was out doing things I shouldn't be doing. A lot of things that were unethical, immoral, unkind. I came home alone to my apartment and this darkness came over me. And I started to walk the streets at two in the morning. And down in our little, this town where my college was, there was a pizza shop called Sparky's Pizza. And on the upper floor was an apartment, and I knew there were young men there that loved Jesus. And I opened, I went up and beat on that door till they answered, and I told them I need to give my whole life for Christ. I went to a chair and bawled my eyes out, and Carrie, that was the turning point right there. I had tasted the darkness, and that's where the light began to turn for me, that I wanted a life following Jesus. And from there, then I went on to seminary, had a call to ministry, and, and moved forward. 
Isn't that fascinating? You know, and I'm glad you raised the mixed nature of those experiences because that's even still the debate today, right? Like you see a lot that happens in the church. You kind of roll your eyes, you wince, you shudder. You're like, really? Can't we do better than this? And I'm not using it as an excuse, but like, I don't know. It's like people actually come to faith in like vaudeville type environments or, you know, you you look at that. Any thoughts on why God keeps using the mess that we seem to create? Well, I think God is very gracious. And I think the gospel is more scandalous than most of us understand. But the Apostle Paul made a statement, even those that preach Christ, you know, out of impure motives, God moves forward the message of Jesus. And yeah, my mother comes home from this revival. God did something in her heart. There is a bit of legalism and performance in it, but something genuine happened. And that first step led to another step and another step. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm crying my eyes out on a chair saying, I can't live this way anymore. I need all of Jesus. Wow. So pick up the story there. You're now a young man. You're in your 20s. You're, you're graduating seminary uh, and things start to go really well. They went very well for me. Pastor to church, the church grew a little bit, really fun. I then went on and got an advanced degree. I got a doctorate, ended up getting invited to be on the faculty of a seminary up in Nyack, New York, which is a wonderful experience. Two years into that, for whatever reason, they decide they want me to be the president of this, the, the leader of this seminary, which was crazy. I'm 34 years old, but, but I want you to hear this for later. I was too wounded to say no. See, once they invited me, bigger job, bigger salary, two secretaries, car status, I was just too wounded to say no. And after two years of that, the opposition that came because me being new to the denomination, I didn't have the internal fortitude to handle it. And uh, I just went out west and uh, left New York, went all across the country to to be uh, part of a, developing a graduate program for Simpson University. But I'll be honest with you, uh, the wounding and my performance were, were showing two different things. See, my performance said, God's all over me. He can advance. People are coming to Christ. He's writing books. He's a good speaker. My wounding was leaving me with increasing levels of anxiety. I was beginning to battle depression. And the only thing I knew is, we'll try harder, do more. And then when I'm in California, Started this little church with seven people on my back porch. 18 months later, we got eight, 900 people coming to the church. Again, all the appearance of success. Carrie, I went into deep agoraphobia and depression. And my past, my, and this, the unresolved past, the unhealed past caught up with me. And while my gifting and anointing were such that there was advancement in my ministry, I was actually just crushed inside by not dealing with the brokenness of my past. Boy, there's so much in that, Terry. Uh, And I do want to come back to it. You said you're wounding. You you were too wounded to say no, or your wounding caused you to say yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think there's a lot of insight in that. So here I was, 34 years old, a coal miner's kid from Coal Dust, USA, I had moved to the place of being a seminary professor. The next thing I know, I'm being invited to lead this seminary. I had a lot of insecurity. I still didn't know who I was. I still was wondering if I measured up. 
all these wounds of the past, there was still that weenie, that nervous message that would be given to me that was echoing in my head. And all of a sudden, these very, very successful board members and community leaders and church leaders are saying, we want you. And here's the money we'll pay you. And here's the car you'll get. And here's the secretaries you'll have. And here's the status. And to be honest with you, I didn't even consider saying no, because I thought I've made it. This is it. I'm finally a somebody. And so I was too wounded to say no. No would have been the right answer for three reasons. One, I was too new to the denomination. Two, I didn't hold all the same beliefs they held. And number three, I hadn't dealt with all my issues. I should have said no. I couldn't say no because there were too many strokes coming. I had finally reached the performance pinnacle. But unfortunately, shortly after I said yes, all the old guard began to bring up the fact that I was new to this denomination, right. that I you know, had beliefs different than theirs, and they got a little bit nasty, and I didn't have the internal fortitude to be able to withstand that. And so after two years, I just said no and tried to run away. Unfortunately, when I moved across country, I took all my baggage with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, you start this church with seven people. Next thing you know, it's 900 people, which is the part of the story I thought I was signing up for. It's like how to grow your church, right? And, right. and, then, and then what happened, Terry? Well, uh, there's a lot of pressure, as you would know, yeah. that when you are basing your ministry on performance, your last performance isn't good enough. It has to be the next performance. How do you outdistance this? I have people coming wanting to write magazine articles on how did we grow the church. And the whole time that's happening, I'm aware that I'm dealing with anxiety and insecurity, but I wouldn't look at it. And I I ended up uh, going away to teach at a seminary for a week. And at the end of that week, I was so spent emotionally that when I turned the light off on that classroom, it's as if I turned depression and agoraphobia on. And I became afraid of everything. All the unresolved fear of my past was right in my face. And then I went into a deep depression. I made it back to California. I started spending long days in bed crying. My wife and children had no idea what was going on with me. Of course, they tried, quote, Christian solutions. Let's go pray for him. Let's, you know, try to get all the evil out of him. But finally, I recognized nothing's happening. And I'm, I'm on the edge of putting my face through that thin veil between sanity and insanity, and I need help. And I had heard about a program about 1,300 miles away in Colorado Springs, and I just traveled there with my wife and our youngest daughter. She stayed with friends, and I admitted myself. And and I got to tell you, it was a lockdown psychiatric hospital that once you sign the papers, you don't get out till they say you're getting out. And that alone, I remember standing on the sidewalk out front My past was just a mess. And all I saw in the future were lockdown doors in front of me. And I didn't know what to do, but I had no choice. And I went in and that began a very, very difficult 30 days of facing into uh, some of the deep psychological issues that I hadn't really dealt with uh, in my past. Had you not gone there, what do you think would have happened? Like, let's say you didn't have the wisdom, the foresight, the, the grace to, to drive 1,300 miles and check yourself in. If you could play that story out a little bit further, you stayed in your church, you stayed in leadership. Where does that go? Because I'm thinking, Terry, and I, I want to get to the psychiatric institution and so on, 
But I'm thinking about all of the moral failures that we see in the church, but also in business and politics and sports. You know, it's just every single day there's a new headline that just breaks way too many hearts and, and so many stories that, that come forward. I got to believe at some level that the stuff we're talking about today is behind at least some of that. Like, where do you think that would, first of all, I guess there's multiple questions here, but where do you think you would have gone? And then to what extent do you think that is feeding into the cycle that we continue to see today in so many lives? Carrie, I, I am convinced that aberrant behavior is driven by deep wounds and false beliefs and ungrieved loss. Mm. So I was in a lot of emotional pain from what? Deep wounds, false beliefs, and ungrieved loss. I would have had to go in one of two directions. I either go get help or I'm going to have to up the painkillers. Mm. And to up the painkillers might mean different addictions. Possibly I would have turned back to some of the things I did as a young man with addictive uh, chemical behaviors. It could have been immoral behaviors. It could have been uh, aggression. And, and I think a mistake many people make is that they think that when they see somebody that's dealing with uh, an aberrant behavior, whether it's a dysfunction or a, or a dependency or an addiction, that that's the problem. It isn't the problem. That's the symptom of a deeper problem. So you look at this issue of people with moral failures or they're leaving ministry or they steal money from the church or you find out they're addicted to drugs and have a dependency. I know this. Somewhere beneath that is a wound that's not been healed, false beliefs that have never been confronted, loss that's never been grieved. And I don't think the church is good at that. Many times when a guy comes to a pastor and says, I got to tell you, I have an addiction to Internet pornography. The pastor's going to say things like, well, you know, it's wrong, right? Do you feel bad about it? If you don't feel badly about it, let me tell you some things that make you feel worse. And now we're going to make some commitments. You're going to buy covenant eyes and you're not going to go to 7-Eleven and you're going to confess. And then they send you off. Well, what they don't realize is that behavior is simply a symptom. It's a symptom of something deep inside. I would argue performance orientation and workaholism is a symptom of unresolved wounding or false beliefs that have been the result of wounds or loss that they've never touched. And you know this in leadership, who gets time to grieve a loss? Yeah, You experience a loss, off you go. Terry, I've written about that before. And, and every time I talk to leaders about it, and I'm remembering right now, that's probably the first time I heard the phrase was from you that ministry is a series of ungrieved losses. And life is a series of ungrieved losses. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because that was like news to me. And when I thought about it, you know, I'd led through eight years of change and people left and people got mad and, you know, all that stuff. And you're like, Carrie, grieve your losses. And man, when I uncorked that bottle, they came out like, can you talk about that? Because I think think that's what leadership and life is. I remember a moment in POE, whether you were in this cohort or not, when I gave the lead sentence, every loss in life demands an appropriate season of grieving, whether you've lost your favorite person or your favorite pen. And I remembered someone stopping me and saying, say that again, just say it again. And I did, and this person started to cry because they realized as pastors and, and leaders, when you experience a loss, move on, rationalize it, get on to the business of work. But Loss is meant to be grieved. And when we fail to grieve losses, that loss internalizes. We feel that pain. 
And then what do we do? We find some way to kill the pain. You can kill it through performance. You can kill it through addiction. But people want to kill the pain of loss. I, 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 I say this to this day, Carrie. If I go into a room of pastors, I can feel the ungrieved loss in that room. Mm. They had hopes. They had dreams. There were people they thought they could count on. They did their best. They started a program. They preached a good sermon. And guess what? Somebody hit them right in the chops over the whole thing. And they're supposed to act like it's okay. And they move on to the next week and the next. And it's, it's very hard. God gave us the Psalms. A third of the Psalms are Psalms of loss. And what God basically says to us is, bring me the loss. Say it the way you need to say it. Yeah. And I've been in settings where pastor have uncorked. And I mean, just you give them permission and all of a sudden, I mean, they just come out in that brutal, honest language one. And they say what they've always wanted to say, but instead of saying it to the person or failing to say it and keeping it inside, they've learned how to come up and out before God and talk to God about loss. So yeah. let me circle this back around. Yeah. You wonder why. Why are good people leaving ministry? Why does someone that knows about mental health take their lives? Why do great people get involved in immorality? It's because we treat those things as causes. They're not. They're symptoms of deeper issues. And I believe this with all my heart. If you have the fruit of dysfunction, you have the root of wounding. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know what, Terry, that was all so new to me. And even saying it, I'm getting emotional hearing you say it again. Uh, I remember because we met in 03 and it was August of 2006. I think I spent most of that month crying. And mm -hmm. it was just, you know, stuff from you know, not being the popular kid at school to uh, not being very good at sports to, you know, people leaving the church to all that stuff. You're like, I'm okay. There was an old Pepsi ad. I don't know how long ago it was. I don't know whether you can still find it on YouTube, but it's a bunch of guys. And uh, I'm not saying this is gender specific, but there were a bunch of guys and they were all getting hit. You know, one guy got a nail in the face or whatever, or fell off a roof and it's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's basically leadership, isn't it? It's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm back in there. How do, you, how do you grieve a loss? How do you do that, Terry? Well, let's begin with this. If we're not in a safe environment, we're never going to grieve that loss. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people that they don't feel safe in themselves. They don't feel safe with God. And they surely don't feel safe in the church. <laughs> because for many people, the church is a place of judgment and condemnation. And how does a pastor grieve what the people are doing that are hurting him so? And so I think grieving loss begins with finding a safe environment with people that are non-condemning, empathic, who are confidential, and who finally give you the permission to say what's inside and say it like it is. Right. No, no, no uh, veneer over it. It's just like, nope, this is what I feel. Yeah. If I may, yeah. um, we had a pastor in one of our um, seminars, and I usually do a demonstration. And so this pastor had agreed to come forward to do a demonstration of how do you grieve a loss? And he was about 30 seconds into it to where he landed the F-bomb right. in front of 150 people. And he looked at me and I said, it's okay to say, and I said the word right back. For the next 20 minutes, he used that as a noun, a verb, an adverb, you know, <laughs> the direct object of a sentence. The point was it was in there. See, he wasn't making up. That's the way he felt. And the problem is when you have it in there, 
and there's not a safe place to take it out, it comes out dysfunctionally. You kick the dog, you get in an argument with your spouse, you get angry about people, you begin to get arthritis and backaches and colitis and diverticulitis, all because you're not willing to grieve that loss. And it gets in the way of you being effective as a leader. Every wound in life, every loss in life, every false belief needs confronted in the presence of Christ so we can be freed from those. Hmm. I remember, I think that was the first time I realized you can have actual honest prayers. Like you can just say, hey, I'm really mad about this. I'm really frustrated. I've had a, I had a couple of moments, even in the book writing journey. Uh, there was one last year where, because this is, and I'm doing a little bit of preaching here, but see if the student got it right, Terry, okay? You tell me. <laughs> but uh, uh, I was hoping somebody would write a forward to the book, and I had two rejections from really good people. They were just a busy season. I don't think it was personal. And I found myself like kind of frustrated and angry. I was here in my office, and I'm like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, you're upset. Like, I'm not very good at, and then I was reading a book uh, actually this week. I was reading it and it reminded me of some stuff I'm writing for my next book. And I got really frustrated. I don't do this very often, but like I picked up the book and I threw it across the bedroom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Tony's like, what is going on? And it's a great book. I mean, the guy did a great job. I'm like, I'm really upset. And she came over and just gave me a hug. And, you know, I thought about it more sanely this morning and dealt with it in an appropriate way. But like, I was not good with releasing my emotions like that. And again, once it got out, it was like, oh, okay, you can solve this. This is a problem. But we just stuff that stuff, don't we? Is that what you're talking about? We, we do. And unfortunately, I think the church encourages that, particularly among leaders. Mm. Uh, we even get to the point where we forgive too quickly. Let me remind you, there are some Psalms in which the psalmist burnt the house down. I mean, Psalm 109, you read that thing, may, you know, it's like hit him in the head with a rock, make his wife cheat on him, let his children never know who he is, burn his house down. And, and what the psalmist is trying to show us is you've got to take what's in here and bring it up here. And God's the one that can hold it. Anselm Gruen, the great writer said, rage before God at the offense of another is the only way to take that offense off of you. So you have to be able to say, you know, this just infuriates me. But when we try to act like it doesn't and we don't grieve our loss, then it goes dysfunctional and we can end up trying to get involved in different kinds of pain killing. Or you end up taking it out on the people that you're supposed to love the most. And you take it out on your spouse, you take it out on your kids, you take it out on your board or, or, you know, the people who didn't offend you end up paying for someone else's offense. Okay. Ungrieved losses. Thank you for unpacking that. That is such a gift to leaders. And that's true in business. That's true in life. It's just it's the way it goes. It's, it makes a lot of your social media feed too, if you really read it and you say, oh, that's what he's doing. <laughs> right. Uh, so Terry, you check yourself in 30 mm-hmm. days. What happened? Well, first it was frightening. And the first thing I remember that was of a positive note was I was you know, you go in, you sign in, they strip search you, which is really great for somebody that's really having a tough time. They take you into a room and I was sitting on my bed and I start crying and crying. And all of a sudden a phrase from Corey Ten Boom came back to my mind. I didn't even know it. I knew it. She said, the object of your pain can become the source of blessing if you give it to God. I didn't even know if God existed in that moment, but I remember saying, God, if you're there, 
feel free to use this. And, and, and then I went right back to the agoraphobia, the depression, asking if there's any hope. Let me give you the positive side of the psychiatric hospital, loving people, caring people. And they gave me great understanding of what was wrong with me. But it was conceptual. See, uh. I now knew what was wrong, but I really didn't have many occasions to be touched in such a way that it would correct what's wrong. So I understood conceptually about performance, about achievement, about trauma, but they were trying to get me to now just do better thinking. And I came out of the hospital and and was making small strides, okay? And I remember this day, I had taken, I had a little notebook and I had many scriptures on it and I would put it in my back pocket. And it often looked like, you know, you see somebody with skull and they have this little ring in their back pocket. Yeah, I had yeah, a yeah. ring in my back pocket from these scriptures. But this was my frustration, Carrie. Memorizing the scriptures wasn't touching the depression or the anxiety. And I believe in the power of God's word, but it wasn't touching it. And one night I was frustrated and I was saying to God, I can't take this anymore. And finally, what am I going to do? I'll read the Bible more. And I turned to the story of Jesus in Gethsemane. And look what I saw. One, he goes to a safe place. Number two, he has people with him that he thinks he, that love him and will trust him. He grieves, he, you know, to the point of sweating drops of blood. God sends angels to care for him. And here's what I realized. When Jesus was at his worst, God didn't give him a scripture. He gave him an experience of his presence. And I started crying and say, God, in these wounds of the past, I need more than a scripture. I need an experience of your presence. And that's where change began to occur. Now, interestingly, today, 25 years later, neuroscientists say this, concepts will not rewire the brain. When someone's had a toxic trauma, that brain wiring happened through an emotion-laden event. And if you're going to have your brain rewired, you need an emotion-laden event that's positive. So all of a sudden, I realized God was saying to me, I need to meet Jesus in positive ways in the brokenness of my past. And that's step-by-step step where healing started to occur. And of course, where the whole f- framework of what I've been doing for the last years has grown out of, right there, Garden of Gethsemane. Wow. Can you, because uh, that was, uh, again, so everything we're talking about was new to me uh, at the time under your leadership and and, and your mentorship. But uh, this idea that an experience really trumps information, because you're right. I mean, we're great at that. And I guess cognitive behavioral therapy is the same thing. Oh, here's some ideas that blah, 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 blah. But if someone is feeling, how, how like, okay, so take your agoraphobia or pick one of the things that you were struggling with. Because saying, oh, you don't have to be afraid, get out of the house, you know, it's okay, people are safe. What is it that eventually gave you the confidence to, you know, become, to emerge and become who you are today? Like what experience changed that for you or set of experiences? Let me take a run up on that by backing up into one thing you said. You know, the scripture I came to hate was the scripture in 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. And the reason I hated that is anytime I would say to somebody, man, I'm really dealing with anxiety, they'd say, well, don't you know the scripture? Perfect love casts out fear. And I'd want to just like flick them in the throat because what they didn't understand is that scripture wasn't saying the scripture 
perfect love casts out fear, will cast out fear. Oh, yeah. But an experience of perfect love will cast out fear. So what began to cast out my fear? Positioning myself for experiences of God's presence and experiences of God's love in the very memories that had been weighing me down. From, you know, being brutalized by my mom, being beaten down steps with a broom, uh, from statements that were very caustic to the incidents I told you, those were emotion-laden experiences. And then I tried to memorize, fear not. (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you, when the wind is howling and the night is dark, the scripture fear not does not cause you to fear not. Yeah. Because you're still living by those old experiences. And so I began to have these moments that involved, you know, a creative imagination where the Holy Spirit would take a truth and he'd help me imagine it and and experiences with other loving people, which you would have had at POE, mm-hmm. where we connect you with people to love you with an unconditional love. Those experiences started to be my Gethsemane. By the way, you know, um, I believe it was, uh, yeah, Eugene Peterson said, the church has lost Gethsemane prayer. We know many forms of prayer, but we don't seem to be patient with Gethsemane prayer. And what he means by that is giving people the permission to get there and say their fears and cry and hurt and wait for an experience of God's love to come and touch us. I don't know whether you remember this story or not, um, but I'm sure this was told in uh, one of our cohorts by one of the mentors who said he adopted, I mean, might get some details wrong, but the point is still stuck with me all these years later that um, he had adopted a child and the child was adopted. Nah, I'm going to say, I'm going to pick an age, six, seven, eight years old. And he was like, I'm going to pick you up at three 30 today at school. And mm-hmm. the child, the, do you remember this story? Absolutely. No, the adopted, yeah. The adopted child was like, are you sure Are you going to be there? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And he's like, well, of course I'm going to be there. Um, but I guess his background, this child's background was his parents never kept a promise. So he was mm-hmm. just terrified. And he said, it was only the experience of me being there every single day at 3.30 without fail that finally, after I forget, you might remember the story better than me, where he went, he finally understood, oh, you're not going to fail me. But it was all those experiences, all the assurances weren't going to do it. He just had to show up consistently in his child's life. Absolutely. I remember I was in there when that story was told. Yeah. And yeah. it was a powerful illustration of the fact that you have to make a bifurcation between what is true and what is real. Mm. For that little boy, what was real is everybody fails me and doesn't fulfill a promise. Right. Now, as dad, it would be true that I'm there. But until true became real, real was true. Mm. And so for many broken people, that's exactly what they're facing. They, they are in these situations where they've been wounded in the past. Like for me, you know, the word fear not, it, it might have been true, but it wasn't real. Why? Because I had real reasons to be afraid. Yes. You know, you live in a home, a home like you, I did in an environment with violence and crime and abuse. I had reasons to be afraid. It was real. Someone says fear not. It might have been true. It wasn't real. What was true for me was what was real. And then the love of God starts coming in and he makes the true real. And I believe this is what people need out of churches. They need a way to be positioned to experience the truth of God's word. And instead of giving someone that's afraid the text, 
give them perfect love. See? <laughs> what does that look like? Yeah. Well, I think perfect love is I accept you. I, I will not judge you. Let me come near to you. Would you allow me to hold you? You know, there is no condemnation here. You are precious. You are respected and not happen once, but over and over again. I heard a story in Toronto three days ago. Yeah. I'm teaching, I'm teaching there on identity. And this, this pastor raises his hand and he said, when I was a young pastor, I had so many wounds from people. I kept everybody at an arm's length. And he said, but there were two elderly women in that church that made up their mind that every time they saw me, they were hugging me. And he said, I didn't like it, but I put up with it. And he said, I put up with it until I started liking it. And then it changed me. Mm-hmm. You see, something that was true became real. And when, when you've been abandoned by a parent, and then the Bible says, I will never leave you as forsake you, you want to believe it. But you got to remember, that's just a concept. You are shaped by an emotion-laden experience. So we want to position people for emotion-laden positive experiences that come bit by bit, seed by seed, step by step, that begins to transform people's lives. Terry, I've been fortunate to have people like that in my life, but I'm sure there are a lot of leaders. And it's interesting because sort of the the bullseye of the audience for this podcast is people in their early 30s who are leading something exactly where you were when you ended up with that break and, and checking yourself in. They're like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I, I don't feel like there's, there's not even, you know, an older lady who gives me a hug on a regular mm-hmm. basis. How do they begin? How do people begin to discover that mm-hmm. kind of radical acceptance? Because I agree, the church and the world are filled with judgment and rejection and conditional love. Terry, you may remember me saying this, but I think that until we're about 40, our coping mechanisms work okay. So what happens is we have a lot of wounds, we have false beliefs, we have loss, but we've learned how to perform around it. We've learned how to kill the pain. We've learned how to achieve. But somewhere around 40 years old, 37 to 43 years old, it starts caving in. And we begin to deal with emotions that are out of control. We begin to have conflicts in relationships. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I say to people is this, Change doesn't happen because someone told you you need to change. Change happens when you're desperate enough to say, I must change. And that often happens like it did for you when you're in a setting and all of a sudden God speaks a word and it hits you right in the face and you realize I might want to run, but I can't run away from me. I need to allow God to do something. And that's what happened to me. I would have never, I would have never gone this direction if it wasn't that now I'm, I'm in the bed all the time. I'm crying all the time. I'm, I'm dealing with deep emotional pain. I had to have change. There are some of the people that listen to your podcast. I'll be honest with you. They're good people. They're working hard and they don't want to hear this because yeah. what, they're, what they're doing is working. So what I'm going to do is plant a seed that says this, when it starts not to work and you're really willing to look at this, there are ways in which you can start to let God deal with the internal wounds and loss and false beliefs of your life so you don't end up where I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, prayer has been an important part of this journey. And I know that not everybody who listens to this podcast will pray, probably, you know, a good chunk are not Christians, but um, prayer has been really transformative in my life. It's been very transformative in your life. And I realize this is a whole other podcast for a whole other day. 
Uh, but can you talk a little bit about how prayer is different in the way that you approach prayer and the way people experience um, prayer in in the way that you share it? I think before my own breakdown, prayer was an obligation that was matched by certain liturgies of prayer, hmm. uh, ways I learned to pray. And I did it because it was an obligation. I don't know if you have uh, read Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. She's one of my favorite, yeah, she's one of my favorite writers. She's very radical and she's become a Christian in her writing and you get to see that journey. And she just says the most important first prayer is the word help. Mm. You just finally cry out and you say help. And I think that's what Jesus was doing at Gethsemane. Is there any other way here? Help. I'm in a mess. And so I have found that my prayer life has radically shifted from liturgical prayer to a relational prayer in which I'd say it like it is. God knows what's inside of me. I might as well get it up and out. And and I think the two greatest prayers, and Lamont says this, are help, thanks. That's it. Everything in between, you know, is the rest of the uh, rest of the issue. You know, um, Greg Boyd said in one of his writings, God has promised to bind Himself to us through prayer, and prayer is more open, honest dialogue before God. And Carrie, for some of your listeners. I think their greatest anger is toward God, and my encouragement is tell him. Just be honest. Say it the way you need to say it. That's a prayer. Oh, God, you've let me down. Oh, God, I'm disappointed in you. Oh, God, you know, how could you do this to your child? And what you find that the psalmist does is he starts honestly, and somewhere in the psalm, he touches the presence of God, and it moves toward a doxology of God, thank you. And that's what happened in my own life. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to add one other element about Gethsemane prayer. Many Christians are taught to forgive, and I argue people forgive too quickly. And I'm not saying you should be unforgiving, but look what Jesus did. He grieves his loss in Gethsemane, and it's the next day that he says, Father, forgive them. And I think many of us try to forgive before we grieve, and that messes the whole thing up also. You got to grieve the losses that have come your way. And then if there's someone to forgive after you've grieved it, you'll have the strength to go ahead and forgive. But you got to let these losses off, up and out, losses from relationships, from dreams that you had. We got to have a venue to be able to say what's in our heart. How do you know you've forgiven? That's a great question. And I will, I will turn you to, uh, to a book by Miroslav Volf. And in his book called End of Memory, he said, you'll know when forgiveness is complete when the issue no longer comes to mind. Uh, what, what often happens with unforgiveness is we play that tape over and over and over and over again. And we say we forgive, but then here we go again with the emotion. When you've truly forgiven, it's no longer the first thing you see when you get up in the morning. And pretty soon you go a season of time and you can say, wow. That memory no longer comes to mind. Why? Because it's been it's been released. It's forgiven. And that's that's one of the amazing things about the journey. You know, 15, 16, 17 years later, uh, there are things I was struggling with in that moment that just, oh yeah, I have to be reminded of. And mm-hmm. things that, oh yeah, that was part of my story. It's not really what I'm struggling with right now. How has that journey continued for you? I mean, it's been 25 years since that transformative moment. And uh, 
you know, you're back teaching, writing books. In many ways, you could say as or more successful than you were uh, 25 years ago, but it's different, isn't it, Terry? How is it different? Well, it's different on many levels. First, I would say, I don't know if I'm as success, successful, but I know I'm more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a difference between those two for me. I think when I was young, 30, 35, 38, I wanted to be well-known. Yeah. I think after my breakdown, I want to be known well. Mm-hmm. And I think now I am known well, but I'm known well by a smaller group of people. And this book will help people know me well. So I'm not driven by the how many followers do I have and how many people are coming to events and uh, how many people know my name. No, I, I, that just it's not on my thinking anymore. I am thrilled with the relationships I have and that God knows me well, that my wife knows me well, my family knows me well. I have a cadre of friends that know me well. When I go to speak, I want to be open and vulnerable so they know me as well as they can. That's been very, very freedom, freeing Mm. for me. Mm. That's really well said. You know, I've never heard anyone quite say it. I I don't want to be well known. I want to be known well. That, that is... Are there any other ways? I mean, I'm sure it's been different in many other ways, but anything else come to mind, Terry? Well, I think another thing is that I really live more by John 5.19. You know, John 5.19, the Pharisees come and say to Jesus, why do you do the things you do? And Jesus says, I only do the things I see the Father doing. When I was young, I didn't know how to say no. I was too wounded to say no. Yeah. Yes was the answer to most every invitation and the bigger and the brighter and the bolder the more quickly I'm going to say yes. Now I want to spend more time in prayer, more time in fellowship with my Lord and with a small group of people. And when an invitation comes, I want to weigh it and see if that's what the Father's doing. And when it is, then I want to say yes to it. And if it's not, then there's no reason for me to say yes. How do you know? How do you know? Well, I have a deep, I think first I have, you know, St. Ignatius would say you have to have a group of people around you that are asking the right questions. And I have that group. The other one is, does it fit within the framework of what I already know God calling me to do? Recently, by the way, I had two invitations. One was a big church wanted to know if I would come and be their Valentine's Day singer, uh, speaker this year. Okay. And I, and I said, no, I won't be doing that. Well, we pray about it. No, nope, not praying about it. <laughs> but we just thought you could say something nice and happy about couples. Yeah, that's not me. I don't go around saying nice and happy about couples. I have other things to do. Also, I got an invitation. Would you consider being dean of this institution? No. Would you pray about it? No, don't have to. Why? Because I have a sense of, you know, where is it that God wants me to serve? What is the vein of gold that he's opened up that I'm to be mining? And that's why I'm mining mine. You're mining your vein of gold. Others will mine theirs. And that's just, I, there's a lot of peace in that for me. There's a lot of peace, but there's also a lot of security in that too, right? You look at Terry oh. at 34 and you look at Terry today, I've gotten somewhat better at saying no. You still struggle with it a little bit, but it makes it so easy. I've walked away for some huge opportunities over the last three years, you know, that people would say from a career perspective were smart moves or whatever, but it's just, it's not that hard if you know what you're called to. But that's interesting because if you're insecure, you, you feel like you're called to everything. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think identity insecurity is Satan's happy meal. When he <laughs> sees somebody that is insecure, he knows he can get them. And he's going to throw 
some lure, some temptation, some attractive offer right at them in the area of their insecurity. So here I was years ago, a young guy insecure from coal dust USA, and they throw at me the lure of being the head of a seminary. Man, I bit down on it. But what I realized is I thought I could control it. It started controlling me. And and I think that security is something that we really want to work through. I, you know, I, Howard Thurman, uh, a great African-American statesman who passed away in the early 80s, wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. It's for people that are beaten up and battered. And you know what he said? Awareness of being a child of God gives courage. He didn't say being a child of God gives courage. He said awareness of being a child of God gives courage. I spend a lot of my time talking to people about how they can become more aware of the wonder of who they already are in Christ, and then using that as the basis of making the decisions they need to make for their lives. Oh, Terry, this is so rich. What would you say to the young leaders listening, going back to what you said a few minutes ago, who are like, yeah, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm, I'm, this kind of freaks me out. I can't believe I listened to the end. Makes me really mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Uh, Cause that was me like at 36, 37. What, mm-hmm. is there anything you can say? Cause I kind of took that journey involuntarily. <laughs> Thanks to Chuck and being 500 miles away from home. That helps. Mm-hmm. Um, can't really turn the car around. But what, what would you say to leaders who are just afraid right now and going, oh, really, really? Any, any mm-hmm. word? Well, first, let me say this. God's love is amazing. And I think my life bends toward wholeness because Jesus has been leaning on it all along, even when I didn't see it. And so I want to at least say to people, God is not a capricious God who's looking for somebody to crack in the back of the head. He's generous in love, generous in kindness, generous in grace, scandalous grace. And that just to me is thrilling. But here's what I think is true of your listeners. Some of you today are listening and you already tweaked and know this is your issue. You've got to start dealing. You already have enough uh, struggle in your life that you're willing to say yes. And you need to find a way to get on a journey with someone. I think other people are running and here's my confidence. They're not going to listen, but unfortunately they had enough of the seed go in that somewhere down the road, the <laughs> Lord's going to bring us back to mind and, uh, and they'll remember and they'll come back around. And some have just closed their minds and they want to learn the principles of leadership And there's nothing we can do about that. But I know this, God is love. He loves to touch the broken. And here's, I think the kingdom of God works best for the beat up and the battered and the bruised. It works best for, you know, people that have taken it in the chops, people that are having a hard time. And all of a sudden they find the flow of the kingdom of God will carry them. I don't think the kingdom of God works real well for rule keepers and score keepers and fame seekers, but for the rest of us, blessed are the broken because God wants to bring them close and hold them and love them. I remember in a song, Blessed, by Simon and Garfunkel. Boy, is that dating me. Years ago, the line went, blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on. And I have found the kingdom of God is good for that type. And that's my type. And that's who I've been. And that's my story. And I guess I'm sticking to it, that God loves the broken and the bruised. And he loves to bring us into his family. Oh, wow. Thank you. So POE was for a season. Pastors of Excellence was for a season. It is no more. 
uh, but your ministry continues in different forms. What are you doing these days? And then uh, I want to encourage people to get the book. So tell us about that. And you also do a podcast website. Can you just give us the download on Terry Wardle today? Because I would encourage people to get as much as they could of what God is doing through you. Well, I do have a podcast once a week. It's called Sling Stones. It comes out of a text in Zechariah that we can defeat darkness with a mere sling stone. So you can find that on Podbean or iTunes. But I have spent the last years building an organization called Healing Care Ministries. Out of that, we have three types of help. We have an encounter ministry where if someone's broken, they can come to the Healing Care Center. They can come to a Come Away With Me retreat. They can get professional care to help them walk through their own brokenness. I also equip pastors, psychiatrists, psychologists, physicians, and lay people on how to position broken people. They go to the website. They're going to see all the different events, where I'm speaking, what it's on. And then we just do events to help people get more of the Lord, be more empowered in the Christian journey. And if you go to Healing Care Ministries, you'll see all kinds of headers that you can tap on that are going to let you know what we do. There's also free videos there. There's free resources. I'd love to have somebody you know, look at that. And if you're hurting, you want somebody to help you come to the Healing Care Center. If you want to go to an eight-day retreat, come to Come Away, whatever it is, we want to help you. That's great. And that's at healingcareministries.com? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. They can also go to terrywardle.com. And if they happen to buy the book, on the last page, there is a list of all the different social media that they can go to that's going to give them information. Right. And tell us a bit more about the book. It's been out for a couple of months now, so it's available everywhere. It's available everywhere. It came out in the uh, first week of October. I, I was encouraged to write it actually by my agent who was at a seminar. And she said, most of your books are, you tell a story and do a didactic. I think people just need to hear the story so that it connects with their story. So mm-hmm. I wrote it for that purpose. It's, it's a little raw. It's very honest and vulnerable, but it has a story of redemption on the backside of it. And um, it was it was a challenge to write, to be that honest. Hmm. But I believe God meets us in our whole story. And I told my story, hopefully, to connect other people with their story. I had an army chaplain write me and say, I was halfway through the book when I realized I was no longer reading this book because of Terry's story. I was reading it because it was getting me in touch with my story. And when he said that, I thought, aha, that's what I was after. Yeah, and it's a great book. It's actually... <laughs> Actually, there are a lot of like, really, that actually happened moments in the book. It's called Some Kind of Crazy, An Unforgettable Story of Profound Brokenness and Breathtaking Grace. So Terry Wardle, thank you. Thank you for the huge impact you have had and continue to have on my life, on my marriage, on my family, on our ministry. You're just a blessing to me. And I know you've blessed thousands, countless thousands of others, but thank you so much. Terry, you're precious to me. We are yoked and often yoked at the place of our brokenness because that's where we've met Jesus the most. And give blessings to Tony and you just, I'm a a big fan. So if you ever wonder if anybody's applauding, just listen. You'll hear me out in the ethers applauding for what God's doing in your life. Thanks, Terry. Well, friends, you can watch that episode if you want to. You want to share it with your team. Obviously, you can do that by audio. We have a growing listenership on Spotify and, of course, Apple Podcasts and all the other platforms. But we're also on YouTube. So just search my name and you'll find it there. And uh, Terry Wardle is our guest. His new book is called Some Kind of Crazy. You can get it anywhere books are sold. 
Uh, I hope that really helped you. And uh, I just want to say something, you know, if you found yourself where I found myself in the past, really going, oh my gosh, I need some help here. Who do I talk to? I want you to reach out to somebody right now, just somebody that cares, uh, somebody that can help you maybe go uh, book an appointment with a trained Christian counselor. I would strongly suggest that. And uh, yeah, don't go it alone. I mean, uh, the way I feel today is so different than 15, 16, 17 years ago when Terry and I first met. And I got to tell you, I'm so, so grateful I made that journey. Hard journey, but totally worth it. And uh, if that's the only thing you do as a result of listening to this podcast over the years, well, it will have been worth it. I'll tell you that. Um, So thank you, Terry. And uh, we're back next time with a fresh episode. Actually, in two days, Jasmine Starr is on. Then a couple of great episodes to close out the year, including Jordan Rayner. And then a killer lineup for 2020. Francis Chan, Louis Giglio, Liz Forkin Bohannon, who just wrote a great book called Beginner's Pluck. She's a fun follow. John Mark Comer, Jefferson Bethke, Jenny Allen, Craig Rochelle, Lisa Turkhurst. So Mark Driscoll is going to be on the show next year. Uh, Joseph Sojourner and so many more. Guys, I'm so pumped to bring you this. And thank you to Financial Peace University and to uh, Right Now Media, who sponsored this episode. If you want to help people get out of debt, they are looking for leaders like you to help others. Uh, you can go and simply text Give Hope. that's Give Hope all one word, to 33789. And uh, make sure you check out rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry to get a free trial of Right Now Media today. Well, next episode, we do have Jasmine Starr. She has blown up on YouTube. And uh, well, we talk about a lot of things. Here's an excerpt. So who is your dream customer? Oh, I'm speaking to Elle. Elle lives in Newport Beach with her husband, who's a lawyer, and they met while they were in college. They have two they have two sons, five and seven. She drives a white Range Rover, lives in Manhattan Beach, and is a full-time mom starting her side hustle. But her side hustle has been carefully curated based on her childhood experiences growing up on her father's goat farm in Ojai, California, where she would collect dried flowers. And then later in college, moved into a downtown loft where she would create goat's milk soap and press flowers in the top of them and began selling them at Manhattan Beach Farmer's Market. It was there at her Manhattan Beach Farmer's Market where she ran into a buyer from Anthropology who said that they were having a pop-up shop at the Beverly Center and asked if Elle would be willing to participate in the pop-up shop. Where Elle meets me is understanding she needs to elevate her brand and she needs to extend her marketing on social media and she's looking for somebody to help her do just that. And now on to today's Ask Carrie question. Taylor from San Diego, who says, I'd love to hear Carrie's advice on having a high-impact marriage within the high-impact leader lifestyle. Would love to hear his perspective. So, Taylor, my guess is that you did the high-impact leader course, uh, which is always available at thehighimpactleader.com. And that's about getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. So how do you have a high-impact marriage? Well, actually, that's the idea behind the high-impact lifestyle, is the problem that I'm trying to address and that I had to address in my life is sometimes those of us who are leaders take our leadership at work more seriously than we take our leadership at home. And I did that all through, you know, this great episode to talk about this with, because in my thirties, I was winning at work and losing at home, but I kind of thought, well, you know what, like winning at work, particularly in ministry, cause you're doing it right for God. It's like, well, that kind of makes up for all that stuff. And the answer is eh, it does not, it does not winning at work and losing at home means you're losing, period. And it took me a while to figure that out. So here's the problem, right? 
A lot of us, we spend all of our best energy on work or on something outside of the house. You get home, you're tired, you're exhausted, you expect to be served, not to serve. That is the problem. And that was something I struggled with throughout my 30s. The other thing that happens sometimes too is if you've got a few challenges at home, whether that's putting the kids to bed or cleaning up the dishes or you're arguing or not having a good time with your spouse, um, it's just easier to bury yourself in work. And we live in the age where you don't go to work, work goes to you. It's in your pocket all the time. So it's easier to be on your phone, on your laptop and doing anything but being the person you need to be at home. So a couple of things, and this is at the heart of the high impact leader um, idea is that you take your best energy and your best attention and you also focus that at home. You don't leave work with an empty tank and you can do that by managing your time and energy. So the shift that I made, and this is now quite a while ago, is I tried to make sure when I pulled in that driveway and I walked into the house that I was as fully present for my wife and for my kids as I was at work. And I also wanted to make sure that I left them my best energy, you know, the kind of energy I would give a writing project or a sermon or a book or that kind of thing. And I mean, do you hit that every day? No, I don't hit it every day. You get tired. But I mean, that mindset makes a big difference. Another important discipline that Tony and I, uh, my wife and I have kept for many, many years is don't forfeit your date night. Even when our kids were young, even when money was tighter, we always made time for a babysitter or you do some kind of swap out where it's like, okay, we're going to look after your kids Thursday. You look after our kids Friday and uh, we would go out on a date. And sometimes those dates were really simple. They don't have to cost a lot of money, but date night is really important. We would get away at least once a year without the kids. And as our kids got older, you know what we heard more and more often? It's like our friends would say, I haven't done that in seven years. I haven't done that in 10 years. I haven't done that in 12 years. Well, do it. Just get away with your spouse. That's going to be really important because here's a surprise. All right. My kids are in their 20s. They're 28 and 24 this year. And I kind of thought by the time we became empty nesters, we would be like comatose or dead. Uh, no, you have a lot of gas left in the tank, a lot of life ahead of you. And you're going to find out pretty quickly when the house gets quiet, whether you actually like each other or not. We are blessed to like each other, love each other. We were, we were saying literally last night, I didn't know this question was coming up today, that we're having the best time ever in our marriage. You know where those seeds started? It started years ago when the kids were still at home and we looked ahead and said, you know what? We really got to work on these issues. We've got to go to counseling. We got to, got to build a friendship and a life that isn't 100% dependent on our children. So we did all those things. And that was me and, and Tony did this as well. Just taking our best energy, our best attention and focusing it on each other, on our marriage, on our relationship, getting healthy. And a big part of that for me is expecting to serve my family not to be served by my family. So I hope that helps, Taylor. I love your question. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, if you've got a question, just ask it at hashtag AskCarrie on any social platform and keep them coming, guys. Thanks so much for listening uh, and being part of this really special episode. We're back in a couple of days with Jasmine Starr. Subscribers, you get that one for free. There's so much good stuff ahead. And uh, well, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.